Rabbi David Kalb um, is the rabbi of the Jewish Learning Center of New York, where he's responsible for the creative, educational, spiritual, and programmatic direction of the organization. He also serves as a teacher and a guide to students who are pursuing conversion. He'll be talking about that tomorrow night. Additionally, Rabbi Kalb is an associate faculty member of Klal, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, and a senior rabbinic fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Rabbi Kalb was on the Educational Advisory Board of WNET, a BBC documentary, The Story of the Jews. Before becoming the Rabbi of Jewish Learning Center of uh, New York City, he was Director of Learning and Innovation at Central Synagogue, where he was the first Orthodox rabbi to serve in a senior level position at a major reform congregation. Previous to Central, uh, Rabbi Kalb served as the Director of Jewish Education at the 92nd Street Y. He has lectured in many locations around uh, North America. And uh, his articles have appeared in the Huffington Post, Haaretz, Jerusalem Post, New York Jewish Week, JTA, and Jerusalem Report. He received his BA through the joint program between Columbia University and the Jewish Theological Seminary and rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, Rosh HaYeshiva of Yeshivat HaMivtar in Efrat. Can I tell him about how many times you've seen certain shows? Is that part of your own introduction? He's a deadhead. He will tell you about how many shows uh, he's seen. And uh, uh, what he did mention was he's flown so many times to Northern California, he's officially a citizen of California. <laughs> but he's never been to Southern California because I guess the Grateful Dead never played down here. Is that the deal? Okay. And he loves Bruce Springsteen. So I'm not going to steal his thunder. You'll hear about that. Please join me in welcoming David Kalb to sunny now Southern California. Welcome, David. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ari, for um, everything uh, that you do. Um, I always think about when you go to um, a Jewish lecture, how like you know, there's always like something before the person always gets up there and speaks. You know what I mean? Like there's always someone who introduces them. Some, here, you're lucky today. Like there was only like a person who introduced me. Usually, there's someone who introduces the person who's going to introduce the speaker. You know, and like I feel like. Um, you know, it's enough already. I, and I remembered this uh, story that I just wanted to share with you. Uh, maybe you'll appreciate it. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what this community's like, if, if these things go on or not. But my, my sense is since we're all Jews, they do. <laughs> so um, there was this uh, situation where, um, where four Jews were about to be executed. God forbid, God forbid, God forbid. And as each one comes up to the hangman's noose, the executioner says, listen, we're going to give you a last request, and then we'll kill you. And, um, um, and the first guy who gets up there goes, well, you know, I'm a rabbi, and I have designed the most beautiful um, Yom Kippur sermon, and I'd just love to give it before I die. And he goes, fine, you'll go. Let me find out the other requests. We'll do all the requests, and then we'll kill you all. So the next guy gets up there and he goes, you know, I'm a cantor in that rabbi's synagogue, and I have designed the most beautiful Yom Kippur song, a nigun. I'd love to sing it before I die. He goes, fine, you'll go after the rabbi. Third guy gets up there and he goes, you know, I'm the president in that rabbi and in that cantor's synagogue, and I have designed the most beautiful Yom Kippur appeal, you know, for charity. And I'd really love to give it before I die. He goes, fine, you'll go after the rabbi and the cantor. Fourth guy gets up there and goes, you know, I'm a congregant in that rabbi, in that cantor, in that president's synagogue. Can you just kill me now? <laughs> I actually used to be a congregational rabbi and 
I would introduce the person who would give the appeal, the president. I got up one year and told that story. I said, listen, you all know why he's getting up here. Just give us the money, and then we don't have to go through all this. And we never made so much money before in the history of the synagogue. With that, uh, I'd like to introduce our topic today. Um, so um, the narrative of my life are the texts of Judaism. But the soundtrack of my life is rock and roll. Um, I'm usually walking around wherever I am uh, with headphones in my ears, um, listening to any one of a number of uh, great musicians. Uh, or um, uh, when I'm in my office or anywhere else, I, you know, that I have the room to myself, the music's always playing um, in uh, the background. But what's powerful for me and what I realized, uh, I guess, a number of years ago was that the two experiences often intertwine themselves, <coughs> that I'm often finding um, connections uh, between uh, the Jewish texts that resonate with me and um, rock and roll music. Um, now, when I first kind of got engaged in sharing this with people, it started very slowly, where when I was still a congregational rabbi, um, on occasion, not every time I would get up for a sermon, but on occasion I would tie in some rock and roll lyrics to um, the sermon that I was giving. And I would just find a lyric or two that related to what I already had written about. And people really liked it a lot. Um, so I really started doing it more. And people would be like waiting, like, all right, when's he going to mention the song, you know? Um, and then a number of years later, after I was no longer serving as a congregational rabbi, and one of the other positions I had when I was actually the director of uh, Jewish education at the 92nd Street Y, um, I began this process of writing a, um, a Dvar Torah, uh, an analysis of the weekly Torah portion, Every week, I try to do it every week, and to have a, a rock and roll song, um, you know, related to uh, what I was writing. And I got through almost the entire year uh, doing it. Um, then I came up with the notion that maybe I should do the opposite. Um, in other words, it's very easy to take a Dvar Torah that you've already written and then find some kind of connection to a rock and roll song. What I thought would be more challenging was to reverse it, would be to look at songs and see if I could find Jewish teachings within that song. That's the basic idea, and that's what this class is about. Now, um, I want to be clear that I'm not in any way articulating that the um, composers of these songs had in mind the Jewish texts uh, that I'm going to articulate. That would be extremely anti-intellectual to in any way uh, make that statement. Um, however, I still think there is a way we can see these ideas um, in these songs, not just in the sense that I find some veiled connection, which is to a large degree what I'm doing, um, but I think on a more general level, that creativity is an experience going on where often when someone 
produces a work of literature, a piece of music, a piece of art, whatever the case may be, that even though they have their intention and their approach for how they're producing this piece of creative work, it could be because there's so many thoughts going on, there's so many ideas going on in the world that ideas come into people in a very subconscious way. So maybe you know some of the spiritual teachings I'm sharing could be out there in some way and affect uh, composers in certain ways. I can't prove that through any um, historical knowledge I have of any of the composers I'm going to share, although I have found certain um, connections between uh, the songwriters that I'm going to present today and perhaps certain connections to Judaism. On a more spiritual level, there is um, an interesting book of the teachings of Rav Nachman of Ratzlov, a great Hasidic thinker, called the Sichot Haran. And he shares um, in this book that the teachings of Judaism will be so out there in the world because somehow they will be getting into even the stories of non-Jewish society. So I think what uh, Rav Nachman articulates in the Sichot Haran is very similar to what I'm articulating. On a more general level, we say in the Shachrit, the weekday um, morning service, um, every morning in the traditional text of that service, we have this phrase that comes from Sefer Tehillim, the book of Psalms, how wondrous are your works, O God. Um, and I interpret that line um, to mean that the creative process is part of God's continuing process of the creation of the world. And that we can see in the context of Jewish spirituality ideas that are not officially part of that Jewish canon. So for me, it's seeing you know, rock and roll in these teachings. For others, it could be classical music. For others, art. For others, science. It could be any one of a number of things. But I think the idea of that line is to articulate seeing the world's wisdom within our wisdom and our wisdom within the world's wisdom. And I don't think that's something we should be afraid to do um, as uh, Jews. Interesting enough, I share this thought with my um, wife, who's an artist. Um, and is pursuing a master's of fine arts, and she absolutely can't stand what I have to say about this. And in fact, she was telling me at the time that she's taking a class in art history, and one of the things that she absolutely can't stand about the teacher is that he uses my approach. Not that he got it from me, but that in other words, they're being asked to see all kinds of other concepts in the paintings they're analyzing, um, not from the artist's perspective. And my, and my wife, who's an artist, couldn't be more offended by this because she feels it's only the artist's perspective that's relevant. But somehow, we remain married, which is good on a variety of levels. All right, so with that, we're going to look first um, to the music of the Beatles. Actually, the first song we're going to look at is not officially a Beatles song. It was authored by John Lennon was, of course, a member of the Beatles, but he wrote the song um, after his career with the Beatles. It's a song Imagine. Before um, I share my analysis of the song and play the song for you, I just want to share a couple um, Beatles Jewish facts that you might find interesting, um, and even if you don't. 
So here we go. Um, Brian Epstein, uh, the first manager of the Beatles, was obviously Jewish. He was the son of a prosperous Jewish family in um, Liverpool. Liverpool was not an insignificant Jewish community in that time. Rabbi Isser Yehuda Unterbin, who would go on to become the chief rabbi of Israel, had been a rabbi in um, Liverpool. I think one of the things that's very interesting about Brian Epstein is that he was Jewish and he was gay. And in that time period, I think that made him feel like the other in multiple ways in Liverpool. And I wonder sometimes how that might have affected the thinking of the Beatles and their connection to him. He, of course, died very prematurely. Um, their second manager was Alan Klein, who was also Jewish. Linda Eastman, Paul McCartney's first wife, um, was Jewish. There's a big misconception uh, that she somehow connected to Eastman Kodak because she was a photographer herself and did an incredible retrospective of um, rock and roll musicians in San Francisco. She was not in any way connected to the Eastman Kodak company at all. She just happened to be a photographer and her name is Eastman. Her family was a very, very wealthy uh, family. Anyway, all of Paul McCartney's children from his marriage with Linda Eastman are halachically Jewish. I don't know what their connection to Jewish uh, Judaism is. His current wife, Nancy Chevelle, is also Jewish, and she got a premarital blessing at the liberal synagogue in St. John's Wood, London. They attended services there on Yom Kippur one year, and Paul attended a Chabad fundraiser Tell you, Chabad is just like everywhere. They get to everyone. There is no place where the sun sets on the Chabad empire. Can I, can I add one thing? Yeah. Uh, a friend of ours is a cantor at Temple Beth El in Beverly Hills. Yeah. On the second day of Rosh Hashanah, she There you go. So Paul attended a Chabad fundraiser in New Jersey honoring his father-in-law. And Paul has played Tel Aviv. And I think that's very significant um, given the current BDS situation that's often prevalent amongst rock and roll musicians. Abbey Road, very important Beatles album, is um, named for a Jewish neighborhood um, in London. The New London Synagogue, the synagogue of Rabbi Louis Jacobs, is on Abbey Road, and the St. John's Wood Synagogue, the home synagogue of the British chief rabbi, is nearby as well. Big misconception, Ringo Starr is not Jewish, the drummer of the Beatles. This is an urban myth. And now the urban myth has had some very negative effects for Ringo Starr in that he's received death threats because of bigots who thought he was Jewish. Neo-Nazi websites still continue to promote the idea that Ringo Starr is Jewish. Um, I think one of the most interesting connections is that John Lennon, John Lennon mentions <coughs> rabbis in his song, Give Peace a Chance. Now, this is an important um, thought. Um, if you remember, John and Yoko, uh, they did a famous betting for peace in Montreal in 1969. One of the guests at the bed-in was Rabbi Abraham Feinberg, who was the rabbi emeritus of Holy Blossom Temple 
in Toronto. So he is the rabbi mentioned in Give Peace a Chance. And of course, Holy Blossom is um, one of the most largest and significant um, reform synagogues, really, um, in the world. Okay, so with that, let's turn to page one of um, the booklet that says Rock and Roll and Judaism, the Songs. And I'll play for you just a little bit of Imagine, uh, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Here we go. intentionally um, a challenging song in, on some levels. I don't believe in reality it is challenging, but I think ostensibly it could be viewed as a challenging song to relate to Judaism or to relate to religion in general. The opening two paragraphs really create that apparent challenge. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky, Imagine all the people living for today. Not really a line that you would relate to religious texts in any way. Imagine there's no country, it's, it's not hard to do, nothing to kill or die and no religion too, right? So it's on one level uh, a song that seems to be very much opposed to religion, really regardless um, of the religion. Now, I want to share an interesting and probably not well-known um, bi biographical fact about John Lennon. Um, John Lennon lived in um, an apartment um, on the Upper West Side of, of uh, Manhattan um, on Central Park West in the 70s called the Dakota, called the Dakota. And that's actually where he was shot and murdered by Mark David Chapman on December 8, 1980. 
Um, not far away from the synagogue, from from his um, apartment was a synagogue that was really like just very popular in that period um, in the 70s, a modern Orthodox synagogue. And the name of that synagogue is Lincoln Square Synagogue. It's still um, around today. It doesn't have its current, the rabbi from that time. The rabbi at that time, the founding rabbi of that synagogue was Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, who today is my boss. And he's the chief rabbi of Ephrat. So I heard the following story literally from Rabbi Riskin and he ever comes here, maybe Ari will have him. You can ask him to verify it. So um, he used to have these adult education classes in his synagogue, and adult education in that time period was not like it is today. It seems like everyone has some kind of like um, adult education program going. There's the Wexner program, the Melton program, the Mayer program, you have Ari's program. I mean, everywhere there's a program to the point that I think it's fantastic, but sometimes it get it, it, you know you break up people and you never get a huge crowd in any one given location. Here, I think the CSP is doing really well. They're getting big crowds, it seems. But like I can tell you, in New York now, what we've done in New York is we really the only thing we've really accomplished is creating like separate places where people are engaged in adult ed. Whereas back in the '70s, when Rabbi Riskin kind of started this phenomenon, he would get something like four to five hundred people at an adult ed lecture, and it would be in the main sanctuary of the synagogue. After the lectures, um, he would then take personal audiences with anyone who wanted to meet with him. And he would meet one-on-one -on -one or one in small groups with these people in his office. So his uh, administrative assistant would create a list of you know who would come in in what order. So he's, he's in the office, and the administrative assistant comes in, and they said, listen, there's a lot of people out here who want to speak to you, but John Lennon and Yoko Ono are out here. Would you like to take them first? Now, um, Rabbi Riskin said this. I find it hard to believe, but he did say this. You have to kind of know him to get the fact that he said this. But he went, who's John Lennon? <laughs> right. Now, the next part of the story did not happen. It's kind of more my midrash on the story, but I'll give it to you nonetheless. But I want to emphasize it didn't happen. I like to envision this administrative assistant responding to Rabbi Riskin at this point and going, you know, she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to try to give him some sense of who it was. Anyway, at some point, it, I think it, it did dawn on him who it was and how momentous this experience was going to be. They sat down. They talked. And what Rabbi Riskin shared with me was that John Lennon was contemplating converting to Judaism, which is why. Um, now, of course, he died only a couple of years after this, as I said, on December 8, 1980, when he was killed by Mark David Chapman. Um, the point I guess I'm trying to make is, is that maybe there were spiritual ideas, maybe even potentially Jewish ideas, in um, John Lennon's um, head. Now, I still think that means we have to somehow understand what he's talking about with these lines um, and no religion too. Nonetheless, I think it gives me enough of an opening to share what I'd like to share, and then I'll come back and answer that question of is the song really opposed to religion, right? So if you look at the rest of the song, right, after that and no religion too line, and it goes, imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. 
Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. The main theme of the song is really not about opposing religion. Right? We'll talk about that in a moment, but I would say the main theme of the song is just the world coming together and getting along, that people should all love each other and respect each other and see the dignity and value within each other and that we should have peace in the world and respect, a, a very basic but important concept. Um, to me, this is perhaps um, one of the most important and fundamental messages um, of Judaism. Now take a look at the other handout that I prepared for you. Um, page one, source A. And it's the prayer of the Shema, which is of course really a text of Judaism. It wasn't written as a prayer. It comes from the Torah in Sefer Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter six, line four. Um, and it articulates perhaps our most central principle um, as Jews. Um, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elkeinu, Hashem Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now, I remember as a kid, you know, being in school, and, you know, rabbis and teachers really kind of hitting home this idea that what makes Judaism amazing is that we're a monotheistic religion, and we're the first religion in the world to articulate the message of monotheism. And I remember thinking as a kid that I was just not impressed by what these rabbis were saying at all. Because in my mind, if one God is good, well, two gods is a lot better. Three, four, five, six, as many gods as you got, the more the better. I couldn't understand what was so great about articulating the message of one God. This especially troubled me as a young person because in addition to liking rock and roll, I love comic books. And I used to read Thor, who was based on a Nordic God, right? And, you know, it's kind of similar to Greek mythology. But the way, you know, the way it works in any of these mythologies, whether it's Nordic gods or Greek gods or Roman gods, is you have like a chief god, right, who kind of is like the CEO, right, of all the gods. And then all the other gods are kind of like vice presidents of like different departments. So like, you know, in Nordic mythology, you had Odin, who would be the chief god. And then, you know, Thor was the god of thunder, and then there was another god of this, another god of that. And that seemed like a much more structured and organized way for God to be running the world. I didn't understand how God could be doing it all alone. That never made a lot of sense to me. And then I made the following realization as a child. I was a fairly precocious child. Um, and this was my realization. What came into my mind was the following. If there's one God, in this world, that means by definition, there was one God creating all human beings. And if there's one God creating all human beings, that means by definition, all human beings are equal. Whereas, in a polytheistic system, in a religious system that believes in more than one God, then it's possible to say, well, the God that created me is better than the God that created you. Therefore, I can degrade you. Therefore, I can devaluate you. Therefore, I can enslave you. And very often what we see in ancient society are that polytheistic systems right, create class systems, right, where the best people are created by the best gods. Take ancient Egyptian society and how it interacts in the stories of the Torah. Who's on top? Pharaoh, 
the king of Egypt, who essentially is a god. Then we have the other royal members who are created by lesser significant gods. Then the aristocracy, the military, the citizens, and eventually who's on bottom? The slaves who are created by foreign gods. Since the gods are foreign, it's okay for these people to be degraded and devaluated because they are created by foreign gods. Now we take this concept of a belief in one God and we turn it into actually a mitzvah, where Rambam does that, Maimonides does that, in the Mishnah Torah, the Sefer HaMitzvot. It's a question in my mind whether one can truly command someone to believe in God. Rambam's language is very interesting. He says, to unify the one as it is stated, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, that we have a certain responsibility in unifying God's name. Interesting question. How is it that we unify God's name? So I think it has to do with what I shared about the notion of realizing the equality of all human beings in this world and therefore how they need to be treated if God is creating all human beings. But I think we bring this idea one step forward in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, line 27, when we describe the way human beings are created. The line reads, and God created the human being in the one's own image, in the image of God created the human being. Male and female created the one them. In other words, that human beings, according to the Torah, are created in the image of God, right? And the phrase we use to describe the fact that human beings are created in the image of God is the phrase, B'Tselem Elohim. B'Tselem Elohim. Now, B'Tselem Elohim means, you know, that human beings are created in the image of God. But what does it literally mean? What does it literally mean to say human beings are created B'Tselem Elohim? Can anyone translate that word literally? A picture, right, a picture. It's really saying that human beings are pictures of God. I went to actually a Hebrew-speaking camp, and one of our activities was photography. So if you went to photography, you took Silun. That was what it was called, Silun. So it means that human beings are pictures of God. Now, I know everyone's saying, what are you, off your rocker? All synagogues, doesn't matter what kind of approach to Judaism you have, are against pictures of God. You will not find one synagogue with a picture of God in it. Well, let's think about this in a little bit more of a complex way. And this is a teaching from my, one of my mentors, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. And he shares the following. And i got to ask you some questions in order to share this teaching with you. The most common picture in the world of George Washington, what's it worth? A dollar. Good. Keep those answers coming. <laughs> Most common picture in the world of Abraham Lincoln. What's it worth? Five dollars. Most common picture in the world of Alexander Hamilton. What's it worth? No, I think it's ten. Okay. Now, I can't go any higher because I'm a rabbi. So I've never seen pictures worth more than that value. I really dream of seeing pictures worth more. I don't know. Maybe it's better down here in Orange County than in New York. You know, in New York, rabbis, they're a dime a dozen. They consider it just such an honor that you get to be a rabbi in New York. You shouldn't even get paid a lot, right? That's the way <laughs> they look at it, you know, in New York. But maybe here in Orange County, it's a little bit different. I hope it is. I'll speak to my colleagues 
about this um, after. We'll have some shop talk, right? Now, here's the real tough question. Are you ready? What's a picture of God worth? Infinite value. Or as they say on the credit card commercial, priceless, right? So if human beings are created in the image of God, what that means is, is that human beings are worth infinite value. That means we have to treat every human being with infinite dignity, right? So I think you know, these ideas very much resonate with John Lennon's message in Imagine. I just want to articulate a couple other thoughts that I think also resonate with the song. Um, in Vayikra, the third book of the Torah, Leviticus chapter 19, there's a typo here. It's not verse 17, it's verse 18. It says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Breshit Rabbah, a great uh, midrashic work on the Torah, in chapter 24, line 7, you don't have it in front of you. I'm just quoting it. Also, the, 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 the Sifra, 896, states, according to Rabbi Akiva, that this concept of that you should love, the, love your neighbor as yourself, this is the great general rule of the entire Torah. In other words, that Rabbi Akiva is essentially teaching us that perhaps the central concept of Judaism is to love your neighbor as yourself. Rambam, on page 2, source F, goes beyond this. And to really turn this into a mitzvah, mitzvah 206 in the Sefer HaMitzvah, to love every person from observers of the covenant, as it says, and you shall love your fellow like yourself. Now, it's an interesting question what he means when he says observers of the covenant. Is he referring just to Jews that were obligated only to love our fellow Jew and that you're, he's interpreting the line and you shall love your fellow like yourself, that your fellows could only possibly be Jews? That is a possible interpretation of Rambam. What I think he might also possibly be articulating is the message that maybe this applies not to all human beings, but to only people who are either Jewish or are observers of what are called the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, the seven Noahic commandments. Certain seven basic principles of um, moral life. So Rambam is kind of closing it up a little bit, but I think perhaps leaving a window open that it can apply to other populations as well, as long as they buy in to a certain um, moral message. The last source I want to share um, that I think also resonates with John Lennon's message and imagine is um, Mitzvah 207 from the Rambam. To love the stranger, as it says, and he quotes from Devarim chapter 10, line 19, and you shall love the stranger. Now, this concept of loving the stranger is, without a doubt, the most repeated mitzvah in the entire Torah, right? We see this more repeated than anything else in the Torah, more repeated than Shabbat, than Kashrut, than really um, anything else. I think what's going on in emphasizing this notion of treating the stranger with love is a statement of saying that we need to know how to treat the other in our community, that we have to be extra careful in how we treat those who are different from us in um, our society. Specifically, one of the most famous lines from the Torah is, um, be kind to the stranger. Um, you were once a stranger in a strange land, right? So in other words, I think the message 
um, of the Torah in this regard is to say, look, when we were in Egypt, we were mistreated because we were the other. Now that we're going into our own homeland and we will have power, we will have sway, don't mistreat the stranger the way you were mistreated when you were the other, right? And I think it's very tempting. Often societies, communities can develop what's called the battered child syndrome. When someone's mistreated, it's very likely that they'll often mistreat others once they have sway. And I think the Torah, in setting up and repeating constantly this concept of being kind to the stranger, is setting up this message, don't do that. Be better than that. Be, treat the stranger with dignity and with value. Okay? So I think all of these messages truly resonate in many ways um, with um, that song by John Lennon. Now, the question remains, why in the beginning of Imagine does he kind of um, engage in this critique of religion in general? I think what's going on there is John Lennon is not critiquing the messages of religion, whether it be Judaism or any other religion. I think he's critiquing the what happens very often with religion. I think religion very often becomes a club and a form of sectarianism for the sake of sectarianism. Judaism has a way of degrading itself into this. Christianity has a way of degrading itself into this. Islam has a way of degrading itself into this. And when religions do that and they don't really articulate what are their central messages, I think they can be very hazardous in the world. But when religion articulates what is their true and central ethical messages, it's very much the opposite. In my opinion, John Lennon is critiquing religion for doing the former and not the later. With that, I'd like to move on to the next song. Rabbi, I just had a Please. Um, something that struck me about the first stanza is it is really in alignment with Judaism's belief that we're not here to act so that we can get into heaven or stay out of hell, but that we're here to live Right. I, I think what you're saying is very true. I didn't want to share that point because that's going to be the central theme of our next song. Sorry. No, it's fine. It's really good. It's all good. As I said, wisdom's all out there and we should share it all. It's good. Please. Universalism and particularism in Judaism. 
Um, you know, when I think of that, I think of the classic Mishnah from Pirkei Avot, <laughs> chapter 1, Mishnah 14. Hu haya omer, im ein ani li, mi li, uksha'ani latzmi ma'ani, v'im lo akshav ematai. He would also say, referring to Hillel, if I am not for myself, who is for me? And if I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not, now when? Now, while that can be applied to the individual, it can also be applied to the Jewish people. Let's put the Jewish people in the phrase itself. If, I, if the Jewish people are not for themselves, who will be for them? If the Jewish people are only for themselves, what are they? And if not, now when? Right? In other words, I think what we're both after here is that I think particularism can sometimes lead to universalism. You have to love yourself before you love the entire world. Every now and then I have an experience where a student comes into my office and they want to meet with me and talk to me and they say to me something like, you know, I have a problem with Judaism because I love the world. I love the whole world, Rabbi. And whenever they say this to me, I say the following to them. I go, do you love your mother? You know, it's very easy to love the world. It's much harder to love someone. And I think that's what Hillel's articulating in this message. And I think that's our um, general idea in Judaism, is that while we need to love the entire world, we need to start with particularism and lead it to universalism. I'll come to your comment in a moment. Let's just get to this next song, and then we'll come back around. Let's come back around, because I want to make sure we get to the next text. I'm, I'm sure you do, and that's all good and fine, but we do need to stay on track. Okay, so we're going to take a look um, on page two, and we're going to look at Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen. Um, Bruce Springsteen is one of my favorite musicians of all time. I've seen him, I think, about maybe 50 times in concert. Um, I just came off of a huge um, run this past year of seeing some of the most um, really extraordinary Springsteen concerts um, I've ever seen in my life. In my life. Um, he ended his tour, or, or not the entire tour, but came, got pretty much to the end of the tour um, in um, August of this past year um, at uh, MetLife Stadium, which is kind of like the home team of um, Bruce Springsteen. It's in New Jersey, where he hails from. Um, on the first night of the show, August 23rd, uh, Bruce set the North, his North American record for his longest show ever. It was an incredible three hours and 52 minutes, during which he and the band played 36 songs. Two nights later, he broke that record and played three hours and 59 minutes, 34 songs. And on August 30th, the third and final show, he broke his record yet again, playing four hours and one minute, 34 songs. He broke the record again on September 9th in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in Citizen Bank Park at four hours and three minutes, 33 songs. His world record was set in July of 31, 2012, at Olympic Stadium in Helsinki, Finland, at four hours and six minutes, 33 songs. This show did not include a five-song pre-concert acoustic sets, set, which was not included in the record-holding time. Anyway, I was at um, all three concerts in New Jersey, and they um, just absolutely blew my mind away. Um, uh, I was so inspired by them, I felt that in many ways, with their proximity to the Yamim Noraim, the High Holidays, they helped really get me ready for the High Holidays. Um, and um, 
I actually wrote an article about this in the Huffington Post. So if you Google my name in Huffington Post and Bruce Springsteen, you can see the article uh, come up. Uh, needless to say, there's just a, a very spiritual feel to a Bruce Springsteen concert. Anyone who's seen him will just testify it right away. He's kind of like a, a preacher uh, when the concert's going on, and you just leave really feeling like you can be better than you are, and you can make the world better uh, than it is. Like the whole messages of tikkun olam, of fixing the world, just are very powerfully there um, at a uh, Bruce Springsteen concert. So with that, I'd like to analyze um, one of his um, very classic songs. It's the first song um, off of his third album, um, Born to Run. Um, and uh, it's played fairly often um, in concert. Let's give a listen. You can find it on page two of the song hand. Screen door slams, Mary's dress sweeps. Like a vision, she dances across the porch as the radio plays. Roy Orbison sang and for the lonely. Hey, that's me, and I want you only. Don't turn me home again. I just can't face myself alone again. Don't run back inside, darling. right away possibly going into an image of religion. Um, first, I'm not going to hit this whole hard yet. I want to decode it in a little bit. Just the selection of the character in the song right away might have a religious undertone. Not necessarily our religion, but another religion, one that Bruce Springsteen really grew up with. I'm not going to decode it yet, but just the fact that he chooses the name Mary is a significant line. So Mary dress waves like a vision she dances across the porch. There's a kind of religious vision going on. Then get to the bottom of that first section, right? The singer kind of responds to Mary in an alternative view of religion. He says, show a little faith. There's magic in the night. In other words, Mary's being presented in a religious context, and yet the singer is saying, show a little faith. There's magic in the night. He wants to articulate a different type of faith a different type of religious message. His next line appears insulting, but it's not really that insulting. I wanted to sing this song to my wife at one point, but she didn't like that line, so it got, it got nixed. So um, 
uh, I went with the song The Weight by the band instead, which is kind of our song. We met with that song. Anyway, um, the line reads, you ain't a beauty, but hey, you're all right. It's not really an insult. What he's articulating is a message of like not looking for perfection, accepting reality, that reality can be just powerful. You don't have to live in a world of fantasy. Now, here's where it really kicks in with the religious imagery and where you'll see what I was alluding to about Mary. You can hide beneath the covers, your covers, and study your pain, make crosses from your lovers, throw roses in the rain, right? Now, this is, I think, very interesting religious imagery. Now, it's not our religious imagery. It's Christian uh, religious imagery. Make your cross, make crosses, Crosses obviously refers to the cross. For your lover, throw roses in the rain. The roses is very interesting. According to Anne Winston Allen, um, in a book she wrote called The Stories of the Rose, The Making of the Rosary in Middle Ages, right? Um, roses um, are a symbol of who? Do you want to take a guess? The Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary, right? Um, and... Um, what was very popular was to quote the um, phrase from um, Shira Shirim, a lily among the thorns. Now, that phrase lily is not a rose. However, a number of early Christian thinkers interpreted the lily in Shira Shirim, in the Song of Songs, to be a rose and not a lily, and to be referring to the Virgin Mary. Now, I understand that doesn't resonate with us, but keep in mind that in Christianity, to a large degree, when they're reading the Old Testament, they're reading it, or what they refer to as the Old Testament, they're reading it with the New Testament in mind. Now, that's not something that resonates with us, but that is the way a lot of Christian theologians look at what they refer to as the Old Testament. The 5th century Christian poet, I can't really pronounce this name, maybe someone can help me, Sedulius? Anyone familiar with him? Okay, guess not. Um, actually would talk about the fact that the roses of the Virgin Mary are the symbol, are the representation of her virginity and the fact that she had a virgin birth, right? Fourth century bishop, St. Ambrose, said that Mary represents the rose of modesty. Now, this connects back very well to Bruce Springsteen. Where did Bruce Springsteen go to, high, go to school from... First grade to eighth grade. Anyone want to take a guess? What? No. He went to a Catholic parochial school, and the name of that Catholic parochial school? Anyone want to know? Anyone want to guess? Saint Rose of Lima. Saint Rose of Lima, right? And um, in his school, you can find perhaps pictures of it online. There was roses imagery all over the school. So this, I think, got into his head. A lot of his early music has even more intense Catholic imagery, but Catholic imagery where it's critiquing uh, the Catholic Church. The best example of this is the last song on the first side um, of his first album, Greetings from Asbury Park. The song is called Lost in the Flood. And the lyrics read, Nuns run bald through Vatican halls, pregnant, pleading immaculate conception. Right? So clearly he's very much um, a, a man or a boy of his age growing up in this 
very intense Catholic school environment, not liking it. He left to go to public school, right? And then critiquing it later in life. However, what Bruce Springsteen also does is essentially articulate a new kind of spiritual message. What I would call many, in many ways, a generic American spiritual message. If you listen to the album, The Rising, the album he did um, that was really themed um, about 9-11 and the um, attack on the Twin Towers, um, he really, in this album, articulates almost a liturgy for 9-11. Um, he came up with the album basically by reading um, the New York Times obituaries every day. Um, as you were seeing in the days following 9-11, obituaries appear of all the people who were murdered in the Twin Towers. And what he saw is that disproportionate of these people were his neighbors. He lives in Rumson, New Jersey, and that's part of Mama County, New Jersey. And a disproportionate, the largest proportion of people who were killed on 9-11 came from Monmouth County, New Jersey. And it's a very diverse county. You have like the traders from Wall Street living there, and you also have blue collar people, people who are the firemen and the policemen who went up the stairs when everyone else was going down the stairs, and custodial workers. A lot of different people who were killed on 9-11 were from that area of New Jersey. So Bruce would go through the New York Times get information, call these people up and say, hi, I'm Bruce Springsteen. I was just reading about your loved one who was killed in 9-11. Can you tell me a little bit more about them? And then he wrote this entire album where he basically articulated a liturgy of 9-11 um, from those conversations. But even earlier on, The Rising is, of course, a much later album. I think you see it here in a much more nuanced way in the album Thunder Road, I mean the songs Thunder Road in the album um, Born to Run. Take a look at the second stanza where it says, you can hide beneath your covers. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go on, go on, we read that line. After that, uh, that point says, you can hide beneath your covers and study your pain, make crosses from your lovers, throw roses in the rain, waste your summers praying in vain for a savior to rise from these, street, these streets. In other words, he's saying to Mary, don't get obsessed with that old notion of redemption, that old notion of messianism. Look for a different notion of redemption. Look for a different notion of messianism, one that's very much a part of the real world. And he goes on, well, now I'm no hero that's understood. In other words, if I'm going to be the savior to you, I'm a regular savior. I'm not a hero, right? Don't look to see me in messianic proportions. Look at me in a very regular way. And he goes on, all the redemption I can offer, girl, is beneath this dirty hood. In other words, what's my form of redemption? I got a car, right? And we can get out of this place. We can find a new life, right, by getting into that car with a chance to make it good somehow. Hey, what else can we do now except roll down the window and let the wind Blow back, blow back your hair. Well, the night's busting open. These two lanes will take us anywhere. We got one last chance to make it real. Powerful imagery on page three at the top. To train in these wings, the wings of angels, on some wheels. Rather than look to the help of angels, just go to the car and create a new life. Heaven's waiting on down the tracks. We don't have to look for heaven 
up there, we can have, find heaven right here on earth. Uh-oh, come take my hand. We're riding out tonight to case the promised land, the physical embodiment of redemption. If you want to find that redemption, if you want to find that promised land, we'll find it on our own, in our own way. We don't have to do it in this ultra apocalyptical theological way. Very much, I'm sorry, what was your name? Alita. Alita, what Alita was articulating before, that we can find by living our life in a positive, um, you know, ethical way in this world that we can achieve redemption in this world. So the question is, what did Jewish texts have to say about this? What Alita shared is something that we often say, right, on a pop culture level, we say that Judaism is about this world and not about the next world. But what do Jewish texts actually say about messianism? So let's go back to the handout I gave you. that contains our Jewish text, page three, right? Um, and actually the source, it actually begins at the bottom of page two. Go back one page. So we're on source G, the Mishnah Torah, which is Rambam's central code of Jewish law, Maimonides' central code of Jewish law, Helcho Melachim Umilchamot, the laws of kings and wars. And in this section, he articulates the Messianic era and what the Messianic era will be like, okay? One should not presume the Messiah King by a very interesting phrase he uses to describe the Messiah. The Messiah is referred to as the Messiah King. I'd like you to think about why he calls the Messiah the Messiah King, and maybe we'll answer that question a little bit later on. That the Messiah King must work miracles. One should not presume that the Messiah King must work miracles and wonders, bring about new phenomena in the world, res resurrect the dead, or perform other similar deeds. This is definitely not true. So Maimonides is clearly articulating a vision of the Messiah that's not about miracles, not about an apocalypse. Chapter 12, Halacha 1, Law 1. Do not presume that in the Messianic age any facet of the world's nature will change or there will be innovations in the work of creation. Rather, the world will continue according to its pattern. In other words, you're not going to see crazy miracles happen. The laws of the universe will not be undone. It's going to remain the same. Although, Isaiah chapter 11, line 6 states, the, will, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. These words are a metaphor and a parable. The interpretation of prophecy is as follows. Israel will dwell securely together with their enemies who are likened to a wolf and a leopard as in the prophecy, Jeremiah 5, 6. A wolf from the wilderness shall spoil them, and a leopard will stalk their cities. In other words, these messages are not literally about some weird thing occurring of a wolf lying with a lamb. The idea is Israel will be okay. Israel will finally find peace from its enemies. And perhaps on a larger universal level, the entire world will achieve peace. Halacha 2, second part of page 3. Our sages taught, Brachot 34b, there will be no difference between the current age and the Messianic era, except the emancipation of our subjugation to the kingdoms of other nations. He will not come to declare the pure impure and to declare the impure pure. In other words, he's not going to change Judaism around. It will stay the same. He will not dispute the lineage of those presumed to be a proper lineage, nor will he validate the pedigree of those whose lineage is presumed blemished. 
In other words, if someone has in their background something that maybe makes them problematic in some way, maybe not Jewish, or I don't know what it is that they're exactly referring to, the Messiah will not change that. That will all still be adjudicated through Jewish legal methods, not through some kind of messianic method. Rather, you establish peace in the world, as Malachi says, chapter 3, line 24, he will turn the hearts of the parents to the children. Very beautiful line that he quotes from Malachi, essentially saying the way redemption will be achieved is by lessening the generation gap. There are some sages who say that Elijah's coming will precede the coming of Mashiach. All these in similar manners cannot be definitely known by humanity until they occur. For these manners are, are undefined in the prophet's words, and even the sages have no established tradition regarding these matters except their own interpretation of the verse. Therefore, there's a controversy among them regarding these matters. Regardless of the debate concerning these questions, neither the order of the occurrence of these events or their precise detail are among the fundamental principles of faith. In other words, how the Messiah will come and what will happen when the Messiah comes is irrelevant. What's relevant is the Messiah's vision of the world, and that will be to make the world a more peaceful world, which is something we can start making happen right away. A person should not occupy himself with the Agadot and the homiletics concerning these and similar matters, nor should he consider them as essentials for study of them will neither bring fear or love of God. Similarly, one should not try to determine the appointed time for the Mashiach's coming, the Messiah's coming. Our sages declared in Sanhedrin 97b, May the spirits of those who attempt to determine the time of the Mashiach's coming expire. In other words, we shouldn't say, oh, it's going to happen today, it's going to happen tomorrow, it's going to happen when this happens. It's just something that we should be focusing on trying to make the world a better world. So I think this Maimonides text very much relates to what you were articulating earlier and very much resonates with the song Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen. I just want to bring in one other text which I think even makes this statement in a more powerful way. I'm not going to read through the entire text. I'm just going to summarize it for you. I think, you know, in Thunder Road, um, Bruce Springsteen is clearly um, critiquing in some way, okay, is critiquing in some way, um, you know, Christianity and, and Christianity's notion of messianism. Um, and while he doesn't go into tremendous detail, I think he's alluding to a critique of the virgin birth. Now, I think that's very interesting to compare to the origin of the Messiah from a sexual perspective in Judaism. Um, we won't read through this text, but this is from the book of Genesis, chapter 19. And this text is taking place in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed. Now, in the minds of those who lived in this time, when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, in their minds, the whole world is destroyed and they need to repopulate the world. Specifically, who am I referring to? The daughters of Lot in the Bible. They think the entire world is destroyed, and their only shot of having children is to have sex with their father, Lot. So what do they do? They get him drunk, and they have sex with him. Now, who results from that sexual relationship? Moab. Now, who eventually comes from the nation of Moab? Ruth, who eventually comes from root? King David. And who will eventually come from King David's line? The Messiah. So what is the origin of the Messiah in Judaism? Drunken incest. 
Okay? Now, I want to be clear. Drunken incest is horrific. It's horrible. But there is a statement that we're saying our Messiah comes from that kind of very imperfect origin in comparison to the Christian vision of Messianism, where the, um, where the progenitors of the Messiah didn't actually even have sex. The statement we're making, I believe, is, is it's only an imperfect savior who can save an imperfect world. If a perfect savior came to this world, they'd leave in a second because they couldn't handle it. It's only the imperfect savior who can save the imperfect world. And that's how Bruce Springsteen is setting himself up in Thunder Road. He is the imperfect savior. He sees the imperfection in himself. He sees the imperfection in Mary. You're not a beauty, but hey, you're all right. It's okay to have imperfection, and we can still make a better life for ourselves and for the world. Now, I see we're maybe past our time, so I don't think I'm going to get to the last song, but let me just take any more questions or thoughts that people have that I wasn't able to take earlier. Over here, please. This is a little bit at odds with uh, your last, uh, your last video. Um, but going back to imagine and the no religion too, and the comment that the rabbi made about uh, it's really talking about the elimination of boundaries. But in one strain, not the mind, that's what, this isn't really my Maimonides, it's other strains that you're using, that, that the messianic age is all about the elimination of boundaries. That the act of creation was the creation of boundaries and the creation of particularism. After all, we have animals, we're all men, we have men, we have all these things are boundaries. And we couldn't have creation without boundaries. But then we are ultimately leading to a messianic age where the boundaries are eliminated, the wolf will lie down with the, the lamb, there'll be no differences. And in effect, the laws of Torah go away and no longer become relevant. And religion no longer becomes relevant because there are no boundaries. And it seems to me that that's what, what uh, John Lennon is talking about when he's talking about no religion and all these other things about no boundaries, no possessions. Right. So I hear that take, and I think you're right, that's a take that exists. I think, you know, the thing is this. In any given topic in Judaism, we can have a take, right? Uh, there's really no such thing in my view as the Jewish view on this or the Jewish view on that. There's this Jewish text that says X, Y, and Z, and there's another Jewish text that conflicts with that that says A, B, and C. The question in my mind is what are we going to choose to emphasize? We're ultimately the redactors of the tradition. So are we going to, en are we going to emphasize the no boundary issue, the ultra boundary issue, or the balance boundary issue? I'm here to articulate the balance boundary issue, but I can understand people having another take. Other thoughts? We only had a minute when we met, so all I really got to do was to basically say to him, I just want to thank you for all these years of sheer joy. And he said to me, you're so welcome, and thank you very much. And then we, and then we hugged, and we got a picture taken, and that was it. Um, the other interesting story, and we're not going to get to the Grateful Dead, Grateful Dead, unfortunately, but I spent a lot more time seeing the Grateful Dead than any other band. I saw them between 1983 and 1995, over 200 times, traveling literally across America, seeing them. Um, so uh, at some point, um, uh, not a couple years ago, I got to meet 
um, one of the members of the Grateful Dead, and that's Mickey Hart. Um, and um, it was um, a, a kind of, he was the drummer of the Grateful Dead. And it was a, a powerful moment um, uh, because he's the only Jewish member um, of uh, the Grateful Dead. Uh, so um, what was kind of interesting in our meeting was he heard in advance that he was going to be meeting me uh, because um, it was that when it was at the period of time I worked at 92nd Street Y and he was a speaker at 92nd Street Y that night and everyone in the building knew how much I loved the Grateful Dead so they arranged for the two of us um, to meet and he said the strangest thing to me he said um, um what exactly is this place? You know, like, wh what's going on here? And what do you do here? Like, is this a synagogue? You know, what is it? You know, like he was very confused by the notion of there being a Jewish why and a rabbi serving in that capacity. And I said to him, well, what I strive to do is what you do every night in concert. I try to bring spirituality to people in the context of their real lives. Um, and I hope I'm successful in that endeavor. And that's what I tried to do today in this class. And I hope you all got something out of it. Any other thoughts or questions? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.